Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer. I run the production advice website aiming to help you get better results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me as always this week is my co-host, John Tidy from reaperblog.net. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hello, everyone. And this week, we have a guest on the show, uh, someone who I'm sure will be familiar to most, if not all of you, Graham Cochran, who runs the Recording Revolution uh, website and recently started his own podcast where he has been helping people get started making money from their home studios. In fact, the podcast is for anybody who's interested in moving from being maybe an employee to being self-employed to running their own company and beyond. And he's a great person to talk about this topic because he he's done it himself. He's uh, he's maybe, I would say, probably the most successful audio blogger I know of, um, YouTuber, and now podcast host. Uh, Graham, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. No, we're really pleased to have you. And I, I'm going to have to work really hard to make sure that I ask questions that uh, the people listening to this want to know the answers to rather than just me. <laughs> um, but actually, I think the two are going to coincide really closely. And we're going to start off by talking about the basics of how to start making money from mastering. But we are going to come on to those more in-depth topics for people who have already got started with this later on. So if you're more interested in being more effective and kind of different strategies that you can use, then hang in there. We'll come back to that in a bit. So, I mean, I said to you just before we started recording, uh, normally I ask my guests to kind of give us a, a potted introduction to how they got to be where they are. But I think there's a really good chance that most people already know you and where you've come from. If not, um, we will put some links in the show notes at themasteringshow.com so they can find out more. And we'll probably kind of talk more about how you got where you are and and learn the stuff that you're now sharing as we kind of go on. You've got the Recording Revolution website, which is this fantastic resource, especially for people who want to kind of just get started in recording. I feel like it's one of the best places to get grounded in the the basics, you know, to just kind of go from, oh, I want to somehow record and make some music to actually doing that. Um, and now you've got your podcast, The Graham Cochran Show, where your elevator pitch is you're going to help tell people how to build an online business they love, work less and live and give more to the things and people they care about. I mean, I love that. Why was it that you decided to do the podcast as well as the website? Well, it was an overflow of just what was happening in real life. I mean, I think for there's many years where I was running the recording revolution and and nobody knew it was actually a business. I mean, I didn't know it was a business at one point. I was just trying to figure out a way to monetize all this content and I had no clue what I was doing. But I, there was a point where some articles were, were done and some stuff went public where some more people got to know like, oh, wow, you've turned this into a successful business and more people were interested in how did you take something as random as audio blogging, which seems like such a hobby to people. And, you know, you're not teaching people how to lose weight or make money. It's like you're teaching people how to make recording sound better. How did you take that and turn it into an income stream? And so I started to answer questions and then that turned into like actually coaching people um, just for fun, because they wanted to know. And it's the same th reason why I started the Recording Revolution was just to share what I know and help my real friends in real life. So that was happening for a few years. And uh, I, I eventually felt like, man, I might be able to contribute to this overly crowded field already of, of business, 
growth and development and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's so it's already been covered so well, but so much is changing and I have such a different perspective than other people that I figured there might be some space for me to help. And so I just kind of decided I wanted to create a resource to download everything I know about online business, business in general, and give people a path to maybe taking their skills and knowledge and creating some form of income that might be a side income or do what I did and turn it into a full-time income and kind of buy back their time and do work they really enjoy. So I launched the site uh, in 2018, GrahamCochran.com, and I've just been putting out content and now the podcast on teaching exactly that. It's fantastic. And I mean, I have to say the podcast is great. I mean, I'll be honest because, you know, we do slightly similar things. Um, you know, I'm, I have production advice and this uh, podcast, and I'm also kind of trying to help people do the things that we do uh, and get better results um, and kind of figure their way through all of this. And I forget which one of your shows it was I, I noticed first. I said, oh, Graham's on a podcast. That's interesting. And I remember reading the title and kind of thinking, uh, I'll get around to that. I'm, I'm sure I know all of that. Um, but I did get around to it. And then I was actually blown away because I was like, okay, I should know all of that stuff. And actually, Graham's just reminded me there's about four out of the five things that he just talked about that I'm not doing and I could be doing better and more successfully. And that's why I thought you would be such a great guest on uh, the show because we haven't done this topic before. And I know there are people listening who already do some mastering for clients and would like to to build that up and kind of have more success with it. Um, and there's other people who've discovered that they really enjoy mastering and they are thinking, well, maybe I could, you know, start making some money from this. Um, so maybe we should start out just by giving people some ideas on how they might be able to do that. If, if they're not already charging people for doing mastering work, what would you suggest as the best way to go from, you know, kind of being just somebody who loves doing this stuff to somebody who is able to charge for it? I think that feels like a huge step to lots of people. It does, because the moment you start to think about charging somebody for something, there's a whole lot of stuff that comes up in your brain and it's usually so self-focused. It rarely has anything to do with actually serving people. It's so much focused on like, but am I good enough to charge or do I have the credentials to charge or how much should I charge? There's so much insecurity um, that creeps up and that's pretty natural, especially, and this is what's so funny about any industry that people turn into a income stream. It doesn't have to just be mastering, but if it's something you actually enjoy doing and you're doing it for free, for fun, for yourself, for your friends anyway, A, that's a great indicator that you have some amazing skill and that, that you could offer the world, but B, it's always the thing that makes you feel like, well, why should I charge for this? I do this for fun. And this is, there's some like weird disconnect there when in reality, I feel like if given the opportunity, wouldn't you want to get paid to do things that are fun as opposed to getting paid to do things that are not fun if you have a mm -hmm. choice? And so there's a big, I think there's just a big bunch of barriers and most of them are psychological and mental, but I think it starts with just realizing, Hey, if I know how to master something, I don't have to be the best mastering engineer in the world, but can I help somebody? Can I serve somebody? Can I take somebody's mix and make it better? I mean, I work with home studio people all the time and that's the language they use. I want my mix to sound better, right? Mm -hmm. They don't They don't need a professional mastering engineer who's the best in the world. They just feel like they've taken their mix as far as it can go. It, it's You get so close to it and they're like, how much farther could someone else take it? 
And you, if you're the mastering engineer, meaning you've done it for yourself or for your friends, you have a valuable skill to offer, which is another set of ears and the experience to take that stereo file or stems or whatever you're given and make it better. And there's, Mm -hmm. you don't have to qualify how much better, just if you can give something back to the client that they're like, oh my gosh, this is a huge improvement. You've created value in the world. So you have to ask yourself, can I make somebody's mix better? Can I add value to somebody's life? Yep. I think that's absolutely true because you're right. It takes a lot of guts to take that step. And actually when I first started out, I mean, I only had a month or two's training before I was actually getting my hands dirty, working on mastering uh, real stuff for real clients. And I had mentors. I had people kind of helping me out and giving me feedback. But one of the suggestions that I've seen you make in the past is to start doing things for free, but for other people to start getting that feedback. So you feel like maybe you can master some stuff, offer to do that for some of your friends maybe, and uh, get their feedback. And if they come back and go, well, yeah, actually, I don't think that sounded much better, then you know you've got more work to do. But if they come back and they're like, oh, wow, that's amazing, you know, you've really helped this, this, and this, then I think you know that you're onto a winner. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a difficult transition, but it's it's just it's just kind of baby steps. You know, the first thing is get some feedback from other people. And then I guess at some point you have to take that leap and ask somebody for money for it. But I think another piece of advice you've given is to not wait too long for that. Is that correct? There's something that I call the freelance arc. And the first step is what you're talking about, which is you start doing work for free for people. And I like I started with my friends. I mean, that's the easiest place to start. If you have friends that are musicians, why don't you say, hey, can I master your records for free? And you tell them, I'm trying to build up a portfolio, you know, and that and you can use that then for strangers too. I've reached out to bands or reached out to people that you love their music and you love to work with them and you can offer them like, hey, I know you don't know me from Adam, but I love this record. You give them a, a real genuine compliment on something that you actually love about them. And you're like, I love your music, would love to work on it. And I'm building up my portfolio and I would love to master one of your tracks completely free as just a gift to you and an opportunity for me to to have some of your music in my portfolio because it's super awesome. Someone might take you up on that and that's an opportunity to make exchange. There's value exchanged. Um, you get something, they get something. But you're taking these baby steps to hone your craft, which is what you're describing, Ian. And then the beautiful thing about this business is that it's it's results-based. It's like all you don't have to have credentials. You just have to be able to prove that you can do what they want you to do. And that's what your portfolio should prove to people is they should be able to get on a site and listen to some of the stuff you've done. Preferably if you're a mastering engineer, if I'm doing mastering, I would just say, show me before and afters. Like here's the mix, here's the master. And people go, wow, you know, like show the improvement. That's the proof that you have skill and you could be a nobody And that's how I got clients because I'm virtually a nobody, especially when I didn't have the recording revolution. For sure, nobody knew my name outside of my circle of of influence. And so it was always the portfolio, like, hey, here's what I did for this band. Take a listen to the tracks we produce. What do you think of it? I can do that for you. And they're like, oh, this is great. I want my music to sound that good. So it's just a, it's you're collecting tracks for your portfolio, which is going to give you the credibility to be able to charge later. But what you said, Ian, too, is so important. I see a lot of my students like spend forever building that portfolio and it's either because they don't think that it's good enough yet. And so they're looking for this perfect portfolio, which doesn't exist. And you can always update it later, by the way. Um, but two, they're just stalling because they really are afraid to charge. And I understand that because you're afraid of disappointing somebody. 
But honestly, what's the worst thing that can happen? They're disappointed, which, hey, I've disappointed clients. You do it again until you get it right. You do it again until you get it right. And then worst case scenario, they just don't think you're a good fit and you give them their money back and you just got some practice, you know, and you didn't get paid for it. And that's a shame, but you have to charge something, even if it's not the right amount, you have to charge something to psychologically get over that hump of saying, I have value to offer and it's worth paying for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the good news is that these days it's easier than ever to actually make that portfolio. I mean, it could be as simple as a Spotify playlist. If the artists you're working with actually release their stuff on Spotify, you know, these days with the aggregators, with CD Baby and TuneCore and places, that's getting easier. Maybe it's just a set of links to Bandcamp pages, if that's how the artists you're working with release their stuff, or even, you know, SoundCloud or wherever. Uh, ideally, I guess these days you would probably have a website that can present that stuff nicely, but I've seen people get started with social media profiles. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned there, you know, kind of charging enough. And I think lots of people struggle with the idea of how much they should charge. My advice on that, I don't know whether you would agree with this, is to kind of do a bit of research and find out what the range of prices is. So if you go to, you know, here in the UK, maybe Abbey Road or Metropolis, they're the biggest names in the mastering industry, you know, find out how much they would charge for a master. Then maybe think about, well, okay, how much does it cost to use one of the online mastering services? You know, I I feel like we as humans should be able to offer at least as good as them, almost always better, simply because we have an emotional understanding of what the music is doing. And, you know, that's something we've talked on about on the show before. So I guess the, the right answer is going to be somewhere between those two. And it's just a question of what you feel comfortable with. My advice would be to not be tempted to go too cheap uh, because I think people, uh, there's a risk that people will simply not consider that you're going to offer them something worthwhile if they if they see the, the price being too low. It kind of, that sounds silly, but... No, you're 100% right. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to go as, you don't want to charge what Abbey Road charge right off the bat obviously, because they could go to Abbey Road instead. It is a tricky balance. I mean, do you have any other tips for people trying to figure that out? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This might be a helpful way to think about it. If you already have a job right now, what do you make per hour right now? And unless you're a brain surgeon or lawyer or something like that, where it's a highly specialized skill that is paid a lot in the marketplace, um, you know, take a look at what you make per hour right now. If it doesn't require a highly specialized skill and a whole bunch of specific equipment and training, you should at least be getting paid, I think, what you get paid at your hourly, your hourly rate at your job, if not Mm -hmm. more. Um, And there's people, I'll have students that are, you know, they're maybe making in, in the US $15 an hour at their job that requires no specific pedigree beforehand. They just get trained on the job. And they won't even charge that per hour to master or mix something. I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You, you have a skill and you have equipment you've invested in. You, at the very least, should be charging what you get paid per hour at your job that you could just get hired today and do or anybody could do. Um, so there's something about like comparing it to what you're currently getting paid. Um, and I think it should be certainly more than that because it is a very highly specialized skill that not everyone in the world can do. Especially mastering. I think, man, if you're going to be a mastering engineer, I think you've got a leg up on everybody else because there's this mystique of like, wow, what, what is mastering? Nobody knows what mastering <laughs> is. And, uh, and it's that final step in quality control that I just think commands a lot of respect and value that 
mixing has become, mixing used to be that. And it's like not even that anymore because everyone's got the same plugins. And so people think they can mix as easily and, and I'm helping people do that. But there's something about mastering that still has that. It's just a cooler word than mixing too. It's mastering. So everything's <laughs> going for you. If you want to be a mastering engineer, you might as well play to that strength, which is, Hey, if you take your music seriously, that you'd even hire a mastering engineer, then you want a good one. That's going to respect your music. And it's not going to be the race to the bottom, $5 a master, $10 a master person. That person is just running it through a piece of software. I'm actually going to listen to your music. I'm going to care for it and all the different things that you, that you guys do. So, uh, but I tell people charge something like you go from free. Cause most people are still living in a free land. That's the first step on the freelance arc. Step two is charge something. <laughs> Even if it's too low, so get in the habit of charging somebody something. That's a huge accomplishment because then you realize I am worth something. But then very quickly, you should probably increase your rate because that first thing you charge is probably way too low. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And there's one other thing that I, just before we move on from this topic that I have heard you say before that I thought would be interesting to talk about is uh, you've kind of suggested that even if you figure out, okay, I'm going to say that my hourly rate is is this, whatever, you know, maybe it's, whatever I get at my day job plus $10 an hour or 20 whatever that might be. You've suggested charging by the project, not by the hour. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So this is just a preference for me. I feel like charging by it's it, everything is put it this way. Everything that you do in business has to do with risk. The way I view it, if I charge by the hour, I'm putting all the risk on my client. It's risky for them because what if I take a lot of hours to master it? Um, their price goes up. Um, but also if it only takes one hour, their price goes down, they don't know. And it's that uncertainty that makes them uncomfortable because it's risky. They're not sure what their final cost is going to be. And so what I always want to do in business is take as much risk away or even perceived risk away from my client or customers that they feel way more comfortable doing business with me. And one way we can do that in a service-based business is to charge by the project a flat rate, um, so that they know upfront what their out, out the door costs are going to be. And so for me, it's important and it might be semantics to some, but I'll take, I know what my hourly rate would be, what it's worth, what my time is worth per hour. And I know how many hours it should take per project on average, which again comes from experience, but again, it's an average. And I want to take the, the risk on myself and quote like a flat project rate or per song rate or whatever so that they can, oh, I've got seven songs. It'll cost this amount. It's very easy to calculate. And then if I go over in time, because either I just can't figure it out or I'm experimenting or whatever, I eat that cost because that reduces my internal hourly rate. But if I go quicker, then I win also. But either way, they're comfortable because they know what their costs are going to be. And I think it's like my responsibility as the service provider to take that risk on myself. Yeah, I think that's great. And that's that's exactly what I do to this day. Always the way that it's been charged at the companies that I've worked and the way that I do it myself. And I think... Yeah, that's, that's a great way of putting it. And the other thing I would add to that, I guess, is to be careful when you work out what those project prices are going to be. Again, don't be tempted to undercharge because I've been there, you know, even even if it's just kind of somebody, you know, has, has a really kind of good reason why they feel like actually maybe they deserve a discount or whatever. You need to be really cautious with that because you don't want to be in the situation where actually you're, you feel like you're not able to give them the time that their project deserves because of other pressures that are on you. Uh, you know, you've got other clients breathing down your neck or you've got bills to pay or whatever it is. You don't want to be in that situation where you always want to be happy to and comfortable to do the work for them. So I always build in a little bit of danger time into my estimate. I can master an album in somewhere between four to six hours, but 
I would always uh, base the project price on the higher end of that um, because if, if I get the job done quicker, well, then great. And there's probably other ways that I can give value to that client by, you know, people ask me all kinds of questions about the technical aspects of distribution, all kinds of stuff. So you can always give that value back. But it means that if the project turns out to be more difficult than I expected, I mean, sometimes you do. You just have to say, okay, this took me three times as long as it should have done. And okay, I have to accept that, that you know, my bad. Um, but I think other times it's finding that 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 balance where you you feel comfortable. John, did you find the, the stuff that we're talking about here? How did you find that yourself when you first started charging clients and all the rest of it? Was that something that kind of came naturally to you or did you find that difficult? I think I found it difficult um, just because as a musician myself, I, I, I've been broke my whole life. <laughs> so I know that, <laughs> you know, the, the prices that I wanted to charge for the services is something that was never really affordable to myself. Or so I, I just had to think of, well, if I don't want to uh, work with people that are broke, I want to work with people that have money. So, you know, just get that part out, out of the way and then pick a price that's appropriate for that. I, I think my prices are still fairly reasonable, um, but I don't do hourly for mastering. I do per project, like per song. I offer a discount for full albums or you know anything over five because I'd rather have um, the album credit rather than just singles. Because mm -hmm. um, often like either singles don't get released or, you know, I, I think it's just more interesting for me. Um, it's, it's just a better project for me to work on multiple songs. Because, um, you know, the the admin time spent is about the same whether you're doing one song or if you're doing five for someone, you're still spending the same amount of hours in your email managing that stuff. So, mm -hmm. I think that's a great point, John, to at least acknowledge your own personal issues with charging because you couldn't afford those rates back in the day. And there's so much deep psychological stuff there of, of the way we view money that we might not have even addressed verbally, but it's affecting us wanting to charge other people for stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'd completely agree. And I'm lucky because that was something I didn't have to deal with because starting out working for a company, it's like, that's what the company charged. And they paid me way less than that. So, so you know, it, but that kind of set the precedent in my mind. So I kind of came out of that, the 10 or 15 years working for that company, kind of feeling like that's what my time was worth. But that's something that lots of people who are starting out themselves, that's a luxury they don't have. And it's a tough one because if you, you know, if you have all this empathy for, you know, kind of the the people you're offering your services to, I, th I think it's important though to remember the the value that you're bringing to them, the security and the peace of mind of knowing that somebody objective has listened to the music and has, if nothing else, said, yeah, you're good to go, but probably also improve the consistency and you know, all the things that we know that mastering can do for a project. We're going slightly off topic here, but I had an, an email the other day from somebody who was saying that they found it hard to justify to their clients why a mastering engineer was needed at all when the kind of the online mastering services that we've seen in the last few years have come up. And and I was kind of thinking, but you you bring so much to them because, you know, the computers can't tell whether the clicks and pops are deliverable parts of the sound and can't judge whether this song should have the right emotional balance with that song. And, you know, the computer will just make them all the same loudness and all the rest of it. So I don't, know, I don't want to get completely lost in this, but I think it's like everything else in this topic, it's about balance. I think, you know, it's kind of finding the sweet spot where you're you're comfortable with what you're charging, but it's enough 
to to make it work for you if you're going to try and do it professionally and also that you know people are are happy to pay that money um anyway i i I think picking the price is not even really one of the hard parts it's distinguishing yourself from all the others that charge the same price once you're in that middle range of prices um you know why why would they go with you versus someone else maybe we'll get into that a bit later on well i mean no we could do that now because i i mean graham what, what, what would you say to them well yeah i think that's a great question um i think for one there's you could put too much emphasis on that question. What what makes me unique and distinct to the point where you're just obsessive over like somehow being this radically different mastering engineer that masters with his shirt off and like has poodles sitting next to him and you know it, it, and every, all your masters are printed only on gold records and gold MP3s. That's not even a thing because it's not a real thing. But you know, like you could you could go crazy in one direction of trying to be just different and stand out without realizing there's simple, obvious ways to be different, which is you are physically a different person to work with. I've worked with a lot of people that are just jerks. And, you know, I could work with a guy that's a jerk or a guy that's not a jerk, and they both charge the same amount. And I'm going to go with a guy that's not a jerk. So a lot of it is relational. A lot lot of it is um, the way they experienced working with you. If you gave them a delightful experience, then you now have access to their circle of influence because they're going to tell people that they're connected to about you. And so again, it's just the whole word of mouth thing, whereas you're not more any special than someone else necessarily, but you are who they heard of because you did work with somebody. So I think there's something about not being too focused on it, but you're absolutely right, John, that you have to understand what's your true value. There's something I learned from Jay Abraham years ago that I thought was just a simple but mind-blowing concept about um, viewing yourself um, as the service provider, viewing yourself as your client's trusted advisor. And everything you do, you have to view through the lens of, I am their trusted advisor. I'm not just providing the service of mastering. I'm not just improving their music, but I'm also their coach. I'm also their advisor that they trust, which means uh, they could come to me and I could listen to their stuff um, and I could notice that they have a tight financial situation, let's say, and then maybe they really can't afford my rates and somehow it's been made clear explicitly. I don't know how, but I could say, you know what? I think this might be a stretch for you actually to work for to do me to do your whole album. You might just get better mileage working with the robots, you know, going to Emastered or Lander or something like that. Like if you even turn them away to a robot for this project, you're like, look, let me let me master your single and then save the money by running the rest to the machine. And and you at least got one that I did, and I think it's gonna be better, but you'll get a good result with the robots and you can compare, but I think it'll save you money because that's ultimately what you need right now because you're you're struggling. And I see that right now. This is what's best for you. Um, or in just other ways of like when you're mastering telling them, hey, could you actually remix this one song and change this one little thing or remove this one thing so that it will sound its best and I can do a better job for you if you make this change. Either way, you're, those are examples of you thinking about what is best for them and advising them or whether, Ian, I mean, you're, you're, you're legendary for talking about loudness and, and just under, helping us all understand loudness. And uh, the question comes up, it came up on a Facebook Live I did last week about I have clients that they they want their their tracks just crushed to death the way these other metal bands have it in their town and they don't want the dynamic version I'm sending them what do I do and in that case I was telling this person to be their trusted advisor and offer them both say hey here's the way you want it mastered I'm gonna you're the client 
I'm going to do what you want. And you say it in a respectful way, but I also wanted to over deliver and give you another version. And this is the way I think it should personally be in terms of loudness. And here's why, but I'd love for you to just use both. If you change your mind, you got both and you can explain and educate why you think the more dynamic one is better. And, and they could say, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. Give me the smashed one. And at least they're happy, but at least you advised them and did what was best. And people can tell the difference when you're just providing a service and then when you actually are acting like their trusted advisor. And I think that helps you become more attractive. And then again, the word of mouth factor happens from there. I completely agree. And it's really interesting because there are so many things that we could talk about on, on these subjects now that now we've kind of scratched the surface. Um, that kind of feeds into a point I want to talk to you about later on, which is about authenticity. And But I think that's a great example where, you know, what could inspire more trust in somebody than saying, actually, I might not be the best fit for this for you right now, for whatever reason. Maybe it's a financial reason. Maybe it's because it's not a genre that you feel passionate about or that you have a strong opinion about or whatever it might be. And that will help people trust you. And if people trust you, that's when you become valuable to them and they would choose you out of anybody else that's in the marketplace because of that. And I can't remember who this recipe is, but there's, uh, you know, the whole idea really of, I guess, online marketing is to, your goal is to get people to know you, to like you and to trust you. And if they know, like, and trust you, there's a good chance they will pay you to do work for them if you offer a service that they're interested in. And it just reminds me of one other little tip for people starting out before we move on, which you can kind of hit all three of those. And it's, you know, it's something that I've done. The great opportunity we have these days with social media is to be helpful to people, is to, you know, to just hang out in forums where the kind of people you would like to work with are on Facebook or Gearsluts or wherever that might be, and be helpful, offer useful answers to questions they might have in, in some area that you know something about, you know, mastering we're talking about. That will, A, they'll notice you, so they know you. And if you give them good advice over time, there's a good chance they will end up liking you and trusting you. Um, and then you've got this great basis. So you're kind of, you know, that simple act of just being helpful can lead to all manner of other things. And I know that's something that uh, Graham uh, feels strongly about. We'll get onto that in a minute. Before we do, I asked on uh, on my Facebook page uh what people would like me to talk to Graham about, whether it was getting started, which is what we've just been talking about, or whether it was kind of being more effective and uh, successful at working with clients and and making money from mastering. And it was roughly a 50-50 split. There are pros listening to the show who do this day in, day out. And there are people who've got successful kind of side businesses doing mastering and kind of everything in between. And Graham, something I've heard you talk about a lot that I think just will be generally valuable to anybody um, is the 80-20 rule. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, the 80, 20 principle is as old as time. Um, Pareto's principle is what it's maybe officially referred to or the Pareto distribution, but it's the idea that if you look around everything in life and nature, it seems that there's this disproportionate correlation where, you know, it maybe it's not exactly 80% and 20%, but 20% of the actions result in 80% of the the consequences or results. For example, as a, as a business, typically your product line, if you have lots of products, like let's take Apple, for example, they've got a lot of products they sell, iPhones, iPads, AirPods, Macs, you know, whatever. They make a ton of revenue, but it's not averaged out over all those products. There's probably 20% of their product line generates 80% of their profit. There's probably those, those winners. If you look at any YouTuber's YouTube channel, There's probably 20% of their YouTube videos generate 80% of their views and make up most of their views. 
Uh, it's just this distri- distribution that happens all over the world. And that happens in your own life, especially if you're a business owner, in terms of the things that you do every day and every week in your life and business, we're all trying to do all the things that we can to generate revenue and, and grow our business to the, the levels we want to grow them to. And what the problem is, is we look at all our activities, whether it's email, whether it's you know invoicing, whether it's actually doing the work of mastering, whether it's um, advertising, whether it's getting educated on business, whatever the things we are doing, um, we view them all as equal and they're all just equally important to the overall mission of, of growing the business or running the business. And that's just not really true when you look at the, the under the surface, it's probably more likely lopsided to some degree. It, it's probably closer to 80-20 that it's probably 20% of the activities you do are what's leading to 80% of your clients getting booked, the revenue coming in, the results that you're looking for. That means 80% of what you're doing it's generating some revenue or some progress, but it's only a small percentage. And there's some light bulb that goes off the moment you start to believe that and dig into the reality of that and see what that is for you. Because, and I, this is how I use it, and I, I learned how to apply this in this way from Tim Ferriss's amazing book, The 4-Hour Workweek, of like being honest with yourself about what does it take to actually get the work done and what could I eliminate? Could I really identify 80% of what I'm doing every week and eliminate it or outsource it or automate it in some way? And my revenue would only dip by 20%, but now I freed up you know, my time where I have four fifths of my time back that I could use to double down on the 20%, the things that actually drive the business forward. There's a lot of power there in terms of managing your time and getting um, exponential results when you do that kind of analysis. Yeah, that's a great summary. I mean, you explained that so well. I think we can dig straight into the details. And this gets to the stuff that I would like to know. I'd love to know how you personally, because I know that you kind of have regular sessions where you just sit down and take time to kind of look at this and go, okay, what is the 80%? What is the 20%? Can I reduce any more of the stuff that's not being so valuable? Are you looking at profit? Are you looking at satisfaction in terms of the stuff that you enjoy? Are you looking at the stuff that you get great feedback on, or do you do all of those things separately? How do you personally approach this? Yeah, I do kind of all of the above. In the recording revolution world, as a content-based business, I'll look at what are the 20% of my videos that are getting the most likes, comments, and views. Um, Maybe I should just do more of those and fewer of the 80% to maximize my YouTube growth. I'll look at the tasks that I actually do in a given week. And I, I, like you said, I reevaluate this probably every six months. What does it take to, to run the business? And I'll see like, what's the biggest time suck that's not really leading to money. And the good way to figure this out is, and I, I think Tim posits this idea in his book, imagine you have a heart attack and you're recovering. Thank God. And the doctor's saying, okay, you're lucky you recover, you're recovering, but you can't run at the pace you're running right now. You, you're just going to have to just chillax a little bit. And you're gonna say, doc, I need to get back to work. He's like, okay, that's fine. But you can only work two hours a day. You can't work a full eight hour day or whatever your typical schedule, only two hours a day. If that was doctor's orders, what would you do if you only had two hours each day to keep your business running? And whatever type of activities come to mind are big indicators of what really is the 20% of actually driving business profit. And then he asks the question a second time, you have a second heart attack. And the doctor's like, you are really, really on the edge here. You can't overwork doctor's orders. You can only work two hours a week on your business. 
And again, it's an exercise of ruthless elimination. Like no one wants to have to do that. And it's a little extreme. I look at that exercise and say, well, I wouldn't spend my two hours a week in email. Answering emails doesn't push the business forward. Is it a good thing? Is it a necessary thing? Yeah. But you know what pushes the business forward? Putting out more YouTube videos, putting out more content to reach the world. Going back to what you said, Ian, doing the helpful stuff, being known and being helpful and being liked and building that trust. And then I have an infrastructure in the back end that can capture an email address and send them more value and offer my products and the robots will sell it for me and the money comes in. So if I could do one thing this week, it'd be put out a YouTube video. If I didn't do that and just checked email, well, that'd be a a giant waste of my time because that's not the highest priority, even though that's the thing that used to suck up the most of my time. And it took me a while to realize this is not the best use of my time if I want to grow. So I needed to outsource a lot of this and automate a lot of it and change my expectations on it. So, but I also balance it with what I like to do and what gives me satisfaction and what's going to help me reach my goals. And it's not always about profit. It's also about, do you want to work less? If you want to work less, then you really have to figure out what's the best use of your time so that you can just do the work you really enjoy doing uh, in your business and outsource, eliminate, or, or automate the other things. So, no one knows what the 80-20 is for their business or their life until they sit down and ask those hard questions. And you don't get it right the first time. It's sort of a messy process, but it, it forces you to be honest with yourself and to say, not everything I do has equal value. And most people aren't willing to admit that. Yeah, that's fascinating. So now I have a really hard follow-up question. <laughs> um, I mean, it's something that I f- find difficult about this for myself. And I think a lot of people listening might as well would be, the idea of kind of automating and eliminating a load of stuff is is really helpful and really attractive, but a lot of that stuff depends on me, on us, especially as a mastering engineer. You know, if people are coming to you because of your opinion of how things sound in their music and uh, the advice that we can give on all the rest of it, talking to people and having that communication is a huge part of what we do, of the value that we offer. So I think, would you agree that it's it's even more of a challenge if you're if you're providing a service to achieve that, to, for example, to spend less time on email or or less time responding to customer inquiries and that kind of stuff. Would you recommend finding an assistant? Is that then somebody you have to train up? Do you have any suggestions for that? Yeah. So I would say it's it's twofold for you then. It's one is um, your 20% is going to be different in a service-based business than a product-based business. So it could be that the 20% is customer inquiries, you know, and and profiling the right customer and, and figuring out if they're a good fit. Um, that's helpful to know. It doesn't mean that like email for me in my business is not the 20%, but it could be for you. If it is, I think there's a lot more waste than people will care to admit. So the 80-20 applies to everything you do in a workday. If you give yourself eight hours a day, let's say, or 10 hours a day, whatever you're giving yourself, other than like, you know, eating a lunch on lunch break or going to the bathroom or standing up and, and stepping out of your your dungeon, your audio cave and like stretching and, <laughs> and having normal human breaks. Other than that, are you really efficient with every use of your time? Or are, are, are you kind of on Instagram a little bit? Or are you just chatting with friends on WhatsApp or whatever it is? Like what, are you really effectively using every moment of your day? And I, I think most people aren't. Um, I think you could eliminate a lot just by cutting out your phone uh, and keeping email open. That's another thing when you just have email open all the time, it's kind of this dangerous vortex of, oh, an inquiry came in, a thing came in, when you really just need to batch your time. So it's worth analyzing all those little ways that your time gets diverted and and lost. But then to your other point, Ian, 
I think more people could benefit from an assistant than they care to admit. And I know this because I struggle with this primarily because it's a pride thing. I think most people think nobody else can answer my email. No one else can qualify clients like I can, or it's, it's a high touch thing. And I think for most of us, it's not quite as, we're not that big of a deal as, as much as we think we are. And there is a way <laughs> to, to delegate that to a certain extent to somebody who can streamline the process for you, who can weed out the people that they can easily tell through a series of frameworks aren't a right fit for you and better curate your inbox with the right inquiries um, and be a, like a, a bridge between you and them to protect you from having to be in the inbox all the time and also to alert you when there's something that you really need to check on right away. And I think everyone could benefit from an assistant. That, I say that knowing that it took me five years to finally admit that. Um, when I would lose three to four hours a day in email. Um, and I loved emailing. I love helping people and answering their questions. I, I felt guilty, like having someone else get in there before me and do a lot of that for me and, and on my behalf and, and to sort of minimize that kind of interaction. But there's a lot that can be, I think, outsourced, even if you are the most important person. I think it's actually more important for you to really guard your time and heck, just double your rates then double your rates and you, you know you lose half your clients and you get more of your time back and then you can really streamline your time uh and have better systems in place and serve people better i have a suggestion for the email thing so email is is an important part about talking to our clients uh, but there's a lot of things we can automate and if you use gmail there's a lot of easy things built in I've noticed in the past couple of months, they started this smart compose thing. And so when you reply to an email, it can automatically fill in the person's name that you're talking to. Um, and a lot of commonly used phrase will just autocomplete for you. And that's a little thing that saves me a bunch of time. Uh, but there's also canned responses. And this is a, a function that's probably 10 years old now, but I don't see a lot of people using that. So it's basically copy and paste stuff automatically done for you in... Um, in Gmail. So if someone has an inquiry about mastering, you can just have this canned response of, you know, here's where you send your mastering or your files to master. Here's the loudness guidelines, or here's, you know, here's a list of articles that I've written about loudness online. And, and you can kind of have a lot of these things filled out for you. And, you know, you just pick the right one and hit send. And you don't have to put in much more thought than that until they come up with a, a follow-up, which might just be thank you, or it might be like, can I hire you? And then you put in some actual effort. There's uh, autoresponders, so you can get everything organized and you can have a, a list of emails that you need to go through once a week or things that need to be followed up with and those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And actually, I would add, you don't have to use Gmail for those kind of things. Um, certainly on the Mac, there's a function built in where so I have it set up so that, for example, my prices, um, I just type three letters and hit the space bar and it automatically fills in text that explains to people the pricing structure. So I have yeah. one for individual tracks and one for albums. Um, I have another one about, you know, people kind of say, what file formats would you like? So there's one that kind of fills that kind of stuff out. Um, something that I stole from you, Graham, <laughs> is any email I get from a new email address that I've never replied to before gets an auto response, just a, an immediate reply straight back saying, hey, thanks for your email. I do read all of the emails. If you have any of these problems, here's some information to help you. And if not, um, you know, I will get back to you soon, but please understand if I don't, because you might have asked this, this, and this, which I don't have time for. I had somebody recently tell me that it was overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I hope that not too many people feel 
uh, that way. But yeah, there are all these uh, little things. And I think that's those are all great points. And actually, Graham, you were talking about batching time. And you have another great concept that you've talked about, which is so simple, but I think so effective. And I personally am so bad at it. I think you call front loading your day. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, this is this is game changing. And that's just doing the most important thing in the, the first part of the day. And, and then even applying that to your weeks, doing the most important thing of your week on Monday or Tuesday. Um, and it's like what, you, you know, mom always told you, right? First things first, you know, like <laughs> eat your vegetables first. You know, it's always do, do the important thing first. Hack, hack yourself because you know, you know, every day you're alive or every week you're in the office or in your studio, something's going to come up. Something is going to be a distraction or a fire you have to put out or a really cool opportunity, something you couldn't have planned for. That's just life. And so I would rather get the most important things done first so that I have flexibility in case something comes up. And what that looks like practically for me is on a daily basis, I come in and the first thing I don't do is open my inbox. I never start the day with email uh, because you're just, you're lost at that point. If you start the day with email, you already have a million people telling you what to do or asking something of you. We, I would like to open the email because I'm a human being and email is like this dopamine hit of somebody sent me something or maybe someone wants to work with me or maybe someone famous loves my blog. You know, it's like you're looking for a cool opportunity in your inbox, but it's really just a a dangerous snare to suck away your first few hours of the day. And you're like, all right, crap, it's lunch. I need to do something here productive. And that's how most people start their day. They do it in the corporate world and they do it as, as entrepreneurs. I would rather get in when no one's been vying for my time and do the most important thing before lunch. And that could be mixing a song. That could be shooting a video. That could be editing a video. That could be crafting an invoice for someone that you you really want to work on and you want to do something custom. That could be interviewing somebody you're going to hire. Just whatever the most important thing is you need to do that day, get it done before lunch. And then the first time I would check email would be lunch or around the middle of the day. And that way you it's all batched. And when, when it comes in, you're like, well, I've already done something super productive and now I can see what's going on in my inbox and I can adjust accordingly. But it's all about getting your first thing done. And then on the week, weekly basis, I always front load my weeks. Uh, it's content. It's um, the critical stuff to drive the business on Mondays and Tuesdays if, if I have to do anything. And that leaves Wednesdays and Thursdays because I don't work on Fridays, but Wednesdays and Thursdays to do the things I want to do, whether it's working on a music project or whether it's I'm taking a course, I want to learn something new, or I'm starting to outline a new product I want to develop, but it's just sort of, it's not urgent, but it's something I need to be working on. I'll be working on those things in the back half of my week. Yeah, I think that's such great advice and so simple, and I find it so hard. <laughs> but that's just me. Um, I don't know whether anybody else listening will, will have that problem. Um, I have one other follow-up thing to suggestion to to add to that, which is uh, an idea I got from Sean D'Souza, um, who is uh, an, uh, a blogger who and, and now a podcaster who um, kind of offers all kinds of helpful advice on running your own business and all that kind of stuff. That's the idea of chaos time. Every Friday, I do work on Fridays, but every Friday for me is I don't book any work in. And it's literally marked in my calendar. I, uh, if I look at it now, it says chaos time every Friday. Um, and that basically is a recognition that stuff is going to happen in my week. Whatever I've got planned, things are going to overrun, things are going to go wrong, I'm going to get distracted. And having the chaos time booked in on Friday means I can catch up on that. If I happen to have a fantastic week where nothing does go wrong, then I have the opportunity to maybe either take a day off or just do something that I've really been wanting to do for ages and you know maybe is 
speculative or it's like it's a video that I don't know whether people are going to like it or not or maybe somebody has asked me to a friend has asked me to do something and I want to you know do it for them for free whatever that might be um but most of the time it's catching up on the stuff that went wrong earlier in the week and having that flexibility I even go to the extent of trying to book in the final week of each month um as mainly chaos time that's awesome I'm not religious about that but um I definitely do it before holidays because my uh you know when when the, the kids are off school it's I want to spend time with them um, and it's that much more challenging to fit everything in, in terms of a, a working schedule. So yeah, the final, and if I just, if I didn't book in chaos time, I would just kind of basically run headlong into that, <laughs> that, that deadline of the the final day of school or whatever. So prior to that, the at least a week is down to chaos time. And it just gives me that window to kind of deal with all of the nonsense that life threw at me. Oh, that's good. Having that margin built in, that's genius. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very cool um, concept. Okay, I think maybe the last thing I want to talk to you about, Graham, is, is to come back to something we mentioned earlier, which is something you talk about a lot, which is the, the power of authenticity. We want people to get to know us and then to be helpful to them. Um, and for me, it's really important to me that I'm honest. Um, I'm seeing a lot of YouTube videos around at the moment from... Um, let's say some big name other mastering engineers with headlines and messages that I just think, oh, that's genius. That's people are gonna want to watch that. They're gonna, I'm not gonna go so far as they are literally clickbait, but it's and I feel like, okay, that that's maybe what they want to hear, but it's not necessarily the right thing to tell. I mean, just for example, loudness. You know, if you see a YouTube video that says how to make your masters super loud and dynamic, um, it depends what the person means by that, but if they're literally trying to say that that's true, that's not true. You can't be super loud and dynamic because the two are just a contradiction, right? It's So to some extent, they're offering something that isn't real. And I try never to do that. All my stuff, I try to, I try to boil it down to its essence and make it valuable, but not dumb it down to the point where it's telling somebody something that I just don't think is accurate and but that's, that's why we're stuck around to... twenty seven thousand subscribers there you go <laughs> <laughs> uh. okay so I, I need to ax that don't i that's that's the that's the 80 percent that's not working i need to get rid of that yeah lie 80 percent uh, of the time no to, no <laughs> i disagree i disagree that's not the only way to grow a youtube channel it is a way but not the only way no i think that's true and actually looking at my youtube channel recently i think what i probably need to do is just release more videos um so there's there actually something for, for people to watch um, yes. No, but back on target. Um, the uh, yeah. So just being honest is really important to me. And actually, I feel like that's. I get messages all the time from people telling me they appreciate that. It's like maybe I'm niching to the you know. To, so actually, there's a load of people out there who want the quick and easy fix that actually maybe is not quite as good as the what I see as doing it right. But I feel that's an important part of who I am, and so. I'm honest about that and I feel like people appreciate that and that's why people listen to this show and why people come to the website and and maybe sometimes, you know, ask me to do some work for them or buy one of the products or the plugins or whatever. Um, and that was a really long introduction, Graham. I know you feel the same way, right? Oh, yeah. And I think that's 100% true why your your stuff is so popular and why your your material is so attractive is because it's you that they like. It's it's the way you present things. It's they they trust you, and it's the fact that you're not like those other guys. And and there's so much to unpack under this. And I'll try to do it really quickly. But it makes me think that 
again, we all want to be like everybody else, whether we admit it or not. We see people that are in our field successful and we assume, well, they're successful or whatever we deem as successful, I must have to be more like them. Or you actually just want to be more like them. But the cool thing is, is everybody is so different and everyone will attract different types of people. In the business world, they're very I would call them the the hustlers. They're the people that just say, you got to hustle, 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 you know, grind or die. That's the way you grow your business. You just have to 10X everything you're doing. And there's that's attractive to a certain group of people. It's attractive to a lot of people actually, but uh, that's like the antithesis of what what I preach in, in, on the business side of things. And, and the audio side of things, there's people that say you, you have to use premium converters and you have to use expensive third-party plugins to get a good mix. And I'm the guy saying you could do it on a budget interface with your stock plugins. And that's attractive to some people and it's a turnoff to other people. I mean, I have so many haters that just don't like me. They don't like what I say. They think I'm an idiot. That's an indicator of the authenticity coming through of, yeah, I, I'm not going to appeal to everybody. And so I'm not trying to appeal to everybody. I'm trying to be honest about what I actually believe put it out there in the world or, or explain that to clients or whatever. And then it's going to attract like-minded people. And the world is so big, there's plenty of people for you to attract. And so I think, you know, the danger is, especially if you're doing any kind of content, but even if you're just comparing yourself to other engineers out there, other businesses is to say, I got to be like them. And that's, that's like the backwards approach because that works for them because that's who they are. And people like that. Or that's the strategy they employ and people like that, but not everybody likes that. And the fact, Ian, that you are the way you are, and we've we've known each other for years, and I've been following your stuff for years because I realized here's a guy that can just explain mastering to me in a real straightforward way, and he's honest about it. Like, he understands the questions I have about, like, I want it to be loud and, and I want it to compete, but... I do want it to be dynamic and what, you know, what am I supposed to do? And, and then he understands the technical side of things, but then he can explain it to me in a non-technical way that even I can understand. Cause if you followed my stuff for any length of time, you know, I'm not the technical audio guy. I just don't think that way. And so it helps me. And so I've been very attracted to your stuff and that's why I followed you and we become friends and done stuff together because you're a good fit for someone like me. And if you were trying to be someone else, I probably wouldn't have been attracted to your your content and followed you. So it's so much easier to be yourself. And there's a great line in this book, and that's, that's inspired the first episode of my podcast. The book is called The Go-Giver by Bob Berg. And it's a great little read. Everybody listening to this should read it because it's a parable about business and, and sales, but it can be read in an hour and it's written as a short story. But you learn these five laws that the main character in the story learns about success and one of them is the law of authenticity. And this mentor tells him that the most valuable thing you have to give or offer someone isn't your service, your product, it's you. You are the most valuable thing you can offer. And so you need to be exactly you. And that might turn off certain potential clients. That's true, but it will attract the right kind of clients and the right kind of customers. And it's so much easier when you just stop trying to, to pretend. And I use myself as an example when I launched this second business, teaching people business, I put a big image of myself on the, the website, on the homepage of me in a blazer. I had a whole photo shoot done. I dressed up real spiffy and I tried to look professional. I tried to look like all the other business coaches out there that had nice blazers and a V-neck and nice pants and nice shoes. And it like took me a year to realize, like, I don't wear blazers. 
<laughs> why did I why did I wear a blazer for this photo shoot? But I literally hired a, a, a stylist to to put outfits together for me, and I told her I, I want a blazer. And so she just did what I told her to do because that's what I was comparing myself to other people. And it took me a year and a half to realize, why am I dressed that way? That's not even truly who I am. And that was just one physical representation of me in insecurity, looking at other people and trying to be like them to present a certain way. And I've had to just scrap all of that and just present exactly as who I am in this other niche. And uh, it's so much more freeing to be yourself. I love that. I, I And I love that first episode. You're, it's fantastic. I would recommend everybody listening to this uh, heads over, um, just search for The Graham Cochran Show. We'll put a link to it in the show notes on masteringshow.com. Um, and yeah, listen to that first episode. If you're not convinced by that first episode, then, you know, fair enough. But I think you will just find it so helpful and uh, persuasive and valuable and you'll end up a huge fan just like I am. So um, Graham, thank you so much. I mean, there's a ton of other stuff we haven't talked about that I would like to, but I, you know, I value your time. So thank you so much for uh, being here and uh, sharing some of these ideas. And yes, I mean, people should go to the recordingrevolution.com, right? To get the your YouTube videos on. I mean, there's a ton of stuff there on recording and mixing and little bits on mastering um, and little bits of me here and there. Um, yeah, you're on there, man. So it's grahamcochran.com. Is that right? The new website? Yep, absolutely. Um, and people should have a head over there. I mean, you know, if you're kind of interested in maybe trying to make a bit of money from this, the, the, the mastering skills that perhaps you've learned, or maybe, I mean, I think this stuff is generally useful in almost anything. You know, maybe actually you still just are interested in this because it's a hobby and you, you, you love audio and music, but there's something else, um, that you've kind of always thought, Oh, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could make a bit of money from there. I think, uh, there's some really valuable resources there that Graham offers. It's, it's all coming from his experience. I know, uh, for a fact that this stuff works because I have used some of these techniques myself. Um, you can see that Graham has done it. I know that John uses some of this stuff as well. It's, Actually, it's re I, f I find it really enjoyable. I just you know I love the fact that I can I can help people by putting stuff on the website. I can I can hear from people that they they tell me that it's helpful. That feels great. It feels like I'm giving something back. So I think maybe one percent of the people who go to my website actually end up paying me any money for anything. And I think you, good things come back to you when you do that. Um, and that's another thing that you've talked about. I know Graham. So um, I'll stop now. But yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the conversation. And thanks for bo both of you guys. I mean, John, both you and Ian have been in this game for so long. You're the OGs. You're the originals. And You're so uh, old. So old. <laughs> At least I am. <laughs> Everyone else has either given up on their podcast or they're on to their third podcast or, you know, something like that. But yeah, we've been doing podcasts since 2007 or 2008, I want to say. And now it's popular. <laughs> I know, right? It's popular you were in the business the world. Curve. What's going on? Everyone in the audio industry is already sick of it. Well, you guys have been consistent content creators. And when I was yeah. getting started, we're around and we're doing stuff. And we're, you've, been, you've been exactly what everyone should strive to be, which is class act and focused on serving people and just actually helping people. And that's how you, A, that's what makes the world a better place, but it's also a great business strategy. It's how you do better in business is actually being a genuinely awesome human being. So both of you guys are that, and it's an honor to hang out and talk with you guys today. Thank you. Thank you, Graham, and likewise. Okay, fantastic show. Thanks to Graham for being with us. 
John, thanks for helping out and for editing and mixing the show as always. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music on the show every week. And thanks for listening. Thank you.